welcome. Merry Christmas. I'd like to uh, take a moment, just welcome uh, everybody here that's part of the Refuge Church family. We're glad you're here. I'd like to welcome everybody who is not a part of our church family, but maybe you have family who is here. We welcome you. As I was driving in tonight, I was just kind of thinking about this evening. It's Christmas Eve, and we're getting to have a special service, and we've been, you know, working on it, putting music together and whatnot, but Tonight, right now, 5.30, there's probably, what, 50, 60 services just like this happening all over Fort Myers and another 50 or 60 all over Lee County, and it's happening all over the state of Florida. It's big churches. It's small churches. There's all kinds of denominations. They're all coming together at the same time for the same reason. Even around the country, even around the world in different time zones, all of us pausing stopping everything to celebrate the birth of one child. Of course, it's not just the birth of that child. We're celebrating the birth of hope, the birth of peace and grace and forgiveness. And as we come into this time of year, I kind of feel bad for the atheists. And, you know, we can feel bad for them because you just can't get away from Jesus. He kind of slips in everywhere, whether you're at the mall or, you know, you're shopping or you're listening to the radio. I was at California Pizza Kitchen last weekend, and just listen to the deep theology I got at California Pizza Kitchen. He rules the world with truce and grace. That's better than any of my sermons that you hear in here. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, word of the Father now in flesh appearing. Everywhere you turn, there are reminders that something special has happened, whether it's Christmas trees or your neighbor's manger or concert or lights or candy or present. And I know there are some who are bothered. They say, you know what, that's, that's all too much. We need to keep the Christ in Christmas. I think we ought to worry more about keeping the Christ in Christian, but that's another message for another time. <laughs> but it doesn't bother me that we have this big secular holiday, Santa Claus and snowman, because the religious people of Jesus' day called him a drunk and a glutton, said he was a little too friendly with the world, the sinners and the tax collectors. And so I think if Jesus took in all the festivities in his life, we can take in all the festivities of Christmas because Jesus didn't come into the world to give high fives to those who have it all together. He came to a world walking in darkness. That means that Christmas is for everyone. I got a question for you. Who started their Christmas season first? I'm just curious in the room. Who put up Christmas decorations by Thanksgiving? Show of hands. All right, keep your hands up. If, November 15th, anybody have them up by November 15th? Sue Ann? <laughs> well, we got the right person putting them up here in the church, that's for sure. <laughs> that's not How early, Sue Ann, did you have them up? That's not terrible. I mean, you waited till after Halloween then, right? Okay. <laughs> Tonight, we are going to tell the story of Christmas, and not just the story with shepherds and wise men in a manger, but a season of Christmas that began with God preparing before the beginning of time. That's when he began preparing for Christmas. And so I'm going to ask you if you would stand now and join us. We're going to let every heart prepare him room as we do stand with heaven and nature and sing of his unspeakable joy.
Lord, help us as we focus this Christmas season on why we're here, on the reasons that you had to send your son. And you loved us so much that you did it anyway. So thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, and you can have a seat. Tis the season. That's what we say this time of year, right? Tis the season. And for the last three weeks as a church, we've been talking about seasons. Now, nature has four basic seasons. I think you're a smart enough group to know those. Fall, winter, spring, summer, summer. Come on, guys. Summer. Winter, spring, summer, fall. Four seasons. But life, how many seasons does life have? It's got an infinite number of seasons. Now, some of those seasons are pretty universal. You know, we all are born, so we have a birth season. We have a childhood. We all have that season. Young adult, middle-aged, I'm in that season. Golden years, some of us are moving towards that season. Mixed within all of those seasons, though, of life are other seasons. There's seasons of success and failure. There's seasons of health. There's seasons of sickness. There's seasons when we just feel so certain about things and seasons where we doubt everything. There are seasons when the days just feel so long, and there are seasons when the days are far too short. There are seasons in our lives where God brings an abundant harvest, and yeah, there are seasons of drought and seasons of winter. So what's your season? It's Christmas 2021. Right now, what's your season? What is God doing in your life? What is God doing through your life in this season? Many Christian writers or even secular writers, they use winter uh, to describe a season of suffering, season of trials and tribulations, or maybe that season that is just long and plodding where it feels like spring will never come, a season of winter. But seasons of winter are necessary. Two weeks ago, we talked about those giant sequoia trees. And for a giant sequoia to grow to those big, beautiful trees, well, they got to grow from a tiny seed that's about the size of a a piece of, uh, I think they said oatmeal, the size of a tiny seed. And then they grow into this scrawny little sapling, and it goes through various seasons of winter, spring, summer, and fall. And eventually, they become these massive, strong, giant sequoia. to do that, they need all of the seasons, and that includes even the harshness of winter. They need the snow that comes down from the mountain and those icy temperatures to make them strong and to build endurance. Winter can be cold and it can be bitter. That's why most of us are living here in southwest Florida. So we ran from the winter, but the worst part of winter for me isn't even the temperature. It's something you can't run from. It's the short days. I mean, I just hate in the winter. It's like there's no days. The daylight disappears. It's 530. The sun has already set. As winter approaches, it just feels to me like the night is closing in. Less and less light, more and more darkness. Tuesday was the first day of winter, which means that Christmas every year happens on one of the longest nights of darkness of the year, one of the days with the least amount of light. We can find ourselves in season of winter. And when that seems to be more darkness than light in our lives, and that can hold true these seasons of winter for us as individuals, or it can be seasons of winter for communities or for churches where we go through a dark time. Our nation can go through seasons of winter. I feel like we've had that for the last couple of years. But even humanity itself can go through a season of winter. The Christmas story is light coming into the world after a long winter that led to Christmas. And so that's the story I want to tell tonight. I'm going to use the OG Testament. That's the Old Testament. And we're going to start at the very beginning. 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So before the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing except God. Verse 3 says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And that chapter continues, God makes the land, you know, and he makes the sea and the plants and the animals. And at the end of it, he says what? He says, it's all good. But then something, or better said, someone was missing. So verse 26, it says, then God said, let us, I love that they use the word us. It's the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make human beings in our nature. And so God created beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, and humanity began. Verse 31, it says, Then God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good. See, that's where the Christmas story begins. That's where God begins planning the Christmas story. It's this endless summer filled with God's glory and God's light. There is no harshness of winter in the story. There are no droughts. It's a perfect, sunny, balmy 83 with low humidity or whatever your idea of perfection is. Until that day, Genesis 3, it says the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? It's our first hint of darkness in the story. It's also our first season of what we talked about last week of deconstruction. Adam and Eve deconstructing their faith. Does God really love me? Does he really value me? Can I trust God? Verse 6, it says, The woman was convinced by the snake. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband. It goes on to say, At that very moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame. And right there, that moment, winter begins. And God tells his children, he says, you've rebelled against me. And so now sin and darkness has come into my perfect world. And as a holy, perfect God, that means that I can no longer be in your presence nor you in mine. And so you must leave the light and the warmth of my glory and you must step out into darkness. But before his children leave the garden, we get a glimpse that God's not done with them or humanity yet, that he's still working. Verse 15, he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, as he speaks to the snake, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head. You will merely strike his heel. And so we get a hint to God's plan beginning right here. And then all of a sudden, grace enters the story. Verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife to cover their shame. God sacrifices something beautiful, something he loves, an animal, a beautiful creature to cover their shame and nakedness. Not because they earned it, not because they deserve it, it's actually just the opposite, but because he loves them. God has a plan. Winter has a funny way of making us forget about the warmth of the sun keep telling this to my daughter Kennedy, who's at her first year in Indianapolis at college. I'm like, yeah, it's fun in the beginning, but as you get to January, February, March, you'll forget that the sun even exists. People began in the story to forget about God and his warmth and his son. And so they begin to hurt each other and they begin to seek after other gods. 
And in that moment, God could have saved humanity from the winter in a second. But he's teaching that we can't judge God by the calendar. And so we're introduced to a special family that begins with a man named Abraham. Genesis 12 says, The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. It is a beautiful promise, but there's a problem. Chapter 17 says, Abraham bowed down to the ground. But he laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of 100? And how can Sarah have a baby when she is 90 years old? Chapter 18, verse 14 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's how God responds. By chapter 21, it says, The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant, gave birth to a son, and they named their son Isaac. And for Christmas, that should sound a little familiar. A baby promised to a girl who shouldn't be able to have a child, laughing in disbelief, and then the miraculous birth of a son with a special purpose. God would eventually ask this father, Abraham, to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice that son as an offering. But at just the right moment, grace shows up again. An angel shows up, announces the good news of a substitute, a meek and mild lamb, and the weary Abraham rejoices because God has a plan. Generations then come and go. Season and season pass. God's people eventually find themselves in captivity. They are slaves to Pharaoh, and they're crying out to God, deliver us, deliver us from this bitter cold. And we're told that God hears their cry, but because of the gap between God and man created by sin, they could no longer speak directly to God. They had to hear from God through these special men and women called prophets. The first one of those is a man named Moses. God speaks to Moses. He sends Moses to the Pharaoh, and he says, tell that Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh laughs. Then God shows him who's really on the throne. He turns the Nile River into blood. Pharaoh's response, denial. It ain't just a river in Egypt. And so God sends frogs, and he sends gnats, and he sends boils. And each time the Pharaoh cries, I give up. And each time he goes back on his word. But the last plague would be the worst, the death of the first the death of every firstborn son in Egypt. But again, there's grace, a substitutionary sacrifice available to the people if they accept the gift. Exodus 12 says, go pick out a lamb for each of your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Drain the blood into a basin, then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood. Brush the hyssop across the top and sides of the door frames. For the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians, but when he sees the blood on the top of the sides of the doorframe, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his angel of death to enter your house and strike you down. And so God says, death is coming, and nothing on earth can stop it, not even the most powerful military ever assembled. The only thing that can save you is to put your hope in the blood of an innocent, meek lamb. God will see the blood, and he will know that the lamb died, so now that you don't have to. And so the people are saved, and they escape from Egypt, and they begin the long journey to the land that God had promised. But on this journey, they're a little like kids in the back of a car. You know, they're like, eh, you're going on that road trip. We're thirsty. We're hungry. It's cold in here. She hit me. She came on my side. Don't, don't look at me. And they build walls and... Stuff And so God says, 
you're going to need some rules. And he begins to give them commandments. And he begins to teach them how life works best, how to be happy, how to live in community with each other. And these rules are pretty good. Love God. Don't steal. Love each other. Don't kill each other. And they're good rules. But no matter how hard they tried, they weren't very good at keeping the rules. They even added rules to the rules to try to help. But the darkness always seemed to overcome the light. And so they have an idea. You know what we need? You know what would solve all of our problems? A king. Do you see the seasons starting to repeat here? Adam and Eve had God with them in the garden, but they wanted something more. Israel had a king on the throne of heaven, but they wanted something more. And so 1 Samuel 8, which we spent a lot of time in this year, uh, says, God says, they don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. Do as they ask, but warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And so God says, you know, here's what a king will do. He'll take, and he'll take, and he'll take some more. He'll take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your servants, he'll take your flocks. And the best part is... You get to be slaves all over again. And so the first king of Israel, we know his name, Saul. And he looked like a good king at first, but he became proud. He stopped listening to God. He was so indecisive. He made a lot of PLCs. Those at refuge know what that is, poor life choices. And so God tells Samuel, the prophet, he says, go to this, oh, I don't know, little town of Bethlehem, and there you'll find a new king. And it's going to be a good king. It's a king after God's own heart. And so Samuel visits the town, and he meets a name named Jesse who has seven sons. And in those days, it was usually the tallest son or the strongest son that would become king. And so Jesse brings each one out. He brings the oldest, and he brings the tallest, and he brings the strongest. First Samuel 16, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected them. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. And so Samuel says to Jesse, well, you got any more sons back there? And Jesse laughs. Well, there's one more. His name is David. But he's small. He's meek. He's more of a shepherd than a warrior. And God says, that's the king I choose. And so we know David was the champion over the giant. He led his people like a shepherd. He was gentle. He guided them. He never left the one behind. He wrote beautiful songs, Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I walk through darkness, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David was a good king. He unified God's people, but he certainly was not perfect. He made more than one mess, but God still had a plan. From that royal bloodline, another shepherd king would come, but this king would be perfect. David has a son. His name's Solomon. He's the next king of Israel. And God gave him a little bit of insight into the seasons of life. Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon wrote, To everything there is a season, and a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to embrace, a time to part ways. A time to search, a time to count your losses, a time to hold on, a time to let go. A time to rip out and a time to mend, a time to shut up and a time to speak up, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. 
Eventually, these seasons come and they go. They pass and they go. And the kingdom that David once had unified, again, becomes divided. The people continue to turn away from God. There's civil wars. There's division. Eventually, guess what? They find themselves right back in captivity. It just makes me think of the words of that song, Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, longing to get out of winter. God had a plan. 700 years before Jesus, a couple more prophets, they begin to speak. They begin to hint at a new and glorious morning that would break through the winter. Micah, he's a minor prophet. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Isaiah, a bit more prolific prophet, he writes in chapter 7, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, that's a word that means God with us. Not God against us, not God apart from us, not God apathetic towards us. God with us. God as one of us. God who is not untouched by the bitterness of winter. Isaiah 9 writes, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. He'll be wise. He will give guidance. He'll be called Mighty God. He will be the Divine Creator. He will be called Everlasting Father, a father who cares for the helpless, gives strength to the weak, never grows tired of caring for his children, and he'll be called Prince of Peace, the one who will provide true eternal peace between us and each other and us and God. It says his government this king and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. And so the people are like, well, that sounds pretty good. Prophet, tell us more about this king. Will he have a sword? Will he wear a crown? Will he be strong? Oh, how we will rally around such a majestic leader, prophet, Please tell us more about this coming king. And Isaiah does that in chapter 53. He says, well, there's nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. And cause him grief, yet with his life is made as an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. The prophet spoke these words, but no one really listened. No one got it. And the Old Testament ends. Waiting. Season of waiting. Waiting for a king. Waiting to be delivered. Waiting for someone to come and crush that serpent's head. Waiting for that Passover lamb to end all Passover lambs. 
waiting for that winter to end and a better season to come. And the New Testament begins with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant of David and of Abraham. The wait is over. God's plan becomes known. I love the Christmas story in the Gospel of John. It's not traditional at all, but here's how John writes it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The warmth of the sun was beginning to break that winter horizon. The light for our valley of shadows, the thrill of hope. Of course, we know the story from Luke chapter 2, and I'm just going to read it to you tonight in the William Shakespeare or King James version of the Bible because that's the one that's the most familiar. And it goes like this, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, And it came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph went also out from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary, his wife, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in there, or in, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And suddenly... There was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Since Genesis 3, it had been winter. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining for summer. But on this divine, holy night, the souls of the earth, whoever were and ever will be, were shown their cosmic worth. The God of greatness, the God who created time and space, the God who created the earth and the sky, the God who created every living soul lying in a manger, born to be a substitute, born to die on a cross, not just for the world, but for you, but for me. We all come here tonight in different seasons. What's yours? Maybe it's merry and bright. Maybe it's cold and dark. We were driving here Wednesday for a youth group. We had a Christmas party, and um, I had to order pizza for the youth because that's what we were eating. And so I'm on my phone, you know, with my middle-aged eyes trying to see the phone, and I'm trying to order the pizza. And the sun, man, is just smacking me right in the face. I don't know if you notice this, but the sun just sits so low in the horizon in the winter. It's blinding. During the long winter of earth, God's sun drew closer and lower and closer and lower to the earth until he actually arrived in a manger. During the long winter seasons of our lives, Jesus will continue to blind you with his light, renew you with his warmth, melt the snow, 
as you wait for the glorious summer with no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sin, and no more winters. Carly, I'm going to ask you if you can turn those lights down. We're going to light some candles. We do this every year. It's symbolic. It's a reminder that no matter how dark it gets, there is a light that descended into our darkness, a light that is given to us, a light to illuminate our worth, a light that's also to be shared. And so we're going to share the light with one another tonight. When you light the candles, just some basic instructions. Um, you get the light from the candle over here and take it like this instead of pouring it. Otherwise, you'll pour wax all over the person next to you. We don't want to burn anybody tonight. We're going to stand. If you would just go ahead and stand with us now as you're lighting the candles. We're going to sing a tradition here, Silent Night. And when we finish the song Silent Night, just blow out your candles. We're going to praise God with two more songs, one beautiful or both beautiful, one old and one new. Sing with us. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, mother and child.
setting this plan in motion. It was a holy night, and I pray, Father God, that you would awaken our hearts to know you, Father, to, to realize that you are all we need. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice and your resurrection, and thank you for so willingly passing along your victory to all those who believe in you. We fall before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And thank you again for being here tonight. Um, I hope it was a special evening for you, and it just plants just that, that perfect entrance into your day of Christmas tomorrow with family or however you're going to spend it next week.